0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today, after we listen to the next installment of a February 1994 Terrence McKenna workshop, I've got an announcement about a new way that we'll be covering expenses here in the salon. But don't fast forward just to hear it. Uh, Nothing exciting there, actually. However, uh, what we're going to do is uh, have a -a once-a-year pledge drive and only accept donations during the month of March. That way, uh, nobody will have to experience any pangs of guilt when they read the program notes, uh, because except during the month of March, there's no longer going to be a donate button on the website. But before I explain all of that, uh, let's first get back into the McKenna workshop that we've been listening to. As usual, uh, it is questions from the attendees at the workshop who shaped the conversation. And this one begins with uh, Terrence's interesting concept that the world would be a much better place if there was only one man for every three women. Uh, (laughs) It's an obviously over-the-top idea that uh, even Terrence doesn't believe in. But he says that it's primarily intended to get people talking about the fact that our current way of life doesn't seem to be working out very well. So let's join them now and uh, see if he sparks some new ideas in you as well. Can
1: you maybe briefly go into what your model for how sexual relationships would be in a society? Like, if you had an idea, like, how would you set up the sexual interactions? Like, would you, a get a, would you do away with marriage? And, like, how would you
2: do it? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, certainly because, uh, I mean, in my own life I've gone from incredibly traditional arrangements, uh, you know, long marriage, monogamy, um, and my early <sighs> Psychosexual existence was, I think, very mainstream in that it was driven by the archetypes of Hollywood. Like, I was always amused, or not amused, but puzzled by the concept casual sex couldn't exactly put those two concepts together because for me every relationship i ever had was you know galahad approaching the grail or something and and then i got married and then i was married for a long time and then my marriage ended and uh, and so i've been single for a number of years so i have thought about this i don't uh i don't have a prescription but i'll i'll tell you how i think about it um it's my approach to everything tends to be mathematical. In order to not miss any of the cases, you just work through the exhaustive set and try to understand it like that. Okay, so the exhaustive set is, first of all, you can be single and celibate. Uh, this... Uh, <clears throat> is out of the question for me. <laughs> and in this area, all you have to do is answer the question for yourself. Well, So while there may be those brave uh, and either highly motivated or completely neurotic or God-inspired, who knows, people who can be celibate, I don't think I'm one of them. And I you think, you know, the I Ching invades against a kind of... Uh, Yeah, sterile, it says. It says uh, ideas not fertilized by friends or something grow sterile. Two, then, so now moving through the numerical arrangements, the post-reformation, post-industrial solution is the nuclear family, which I've attacked at times in the past. Um, It is not a traditional social unit. It's less than 250 years old. This is the man, the wife, and the two children. The traditional social unit is a very large extended family of of cousins, sisters, brothers-in-laws, children, elders, so forth and so on. This uh, nuclear family thing is, I think, part of the root of our problem, that it is an engine for the production of neurotic dysfunctional people. And, you know, the entire industry of psychotherapy is based around trying to straighten out what was done to people by their family and trying to get them to stop doing equally horrible things to the people within their family structure. And uh, it's it's an artifact of capitalism. It does not serve human needs it serves the needs of the engines of capital, and it also is based on paranoia. I mean, monogamy in all forms is based on extraordinary anxiety, uh, male anxiety about the behavior of females, and it's also denigrates females to the level of property, because they have to be controlled, and so forth and so on. So I conclude then from that, that certainly marriage doesn't seem to work, and the high levels of divorce and all that seem to to support that. Marriage is, I think, a, a kind of... Part of the what has gone on since the Industrial Revolution is what's called uh, forced social neoteny. Neoteny is the phenomenon of uh, maintaining juvenile characteristics into adulthood. And uh, marriage is a kind of a neotenous... Cesura in life's development, where you're just about to cross the great bridge into adulthood, and then it says, "Last exit before authentic responsibility: get married." And so people leave the great freeway of life, and they and they get married, and they form this "you and me against the world," us back to back, this basically paranoid unit, and they set off then to acquire houses in the south of France, and and little Miro etchings and stuff like that. <laughs> and, uh, and then it ends in great unhappiness and bitterness usually, and people say they wasted their time and they weren't understood and so forth and so on. So, two doesn't work, I conclude, uh, in this monogamous thing. Okay, so then uh, we come now to the flashy possibilities. The culture, the subculture In pornography, fashion, and the advanced sectors of our society, meaning the people who edit interview magazine or I don't know, but something. Anyway, the subliminal message there is that three is far out a a a trois of some sort and that if you get into a relationship like this you're really stretching the envelope and it's quite avant-garde and uh, a, a growth opportunity and so forth and so on. My analysis of this is that it is actually um, a male dominator fantasy of some sort that it has a sadomasochistic um, flavor to it because what you have are two women who are somehow inevitably in competition inevitably judged valued male valued judgments are happening it's uh, sick it seems to me or suspect let's put it that way I don't want to trod on anybody's arrangement but uh, <laughs> but d- uh, well so then he, uh, here then is where I was left with this and then I won't take it any further that an interesting social arrangement is the 3-1 arrangement it's almost in some sense fair and it is uh, amoeboid No one can control it. It's too complicated. And I don't think it's a male fantasy. I think if you suggest to most males that they should enter a simultaneous relationship with three women, that there is a a constriction uh, because it's uh, over-challenging. But that, in fact, if we're talking about future arrangements that completely replace the ordinary family, then one thing that would work, I think, are these three one relationships with a periphery of children around them, and seventy five percent of those children are female, because I think built into this one woman one child thing is this concept that male birth should be reduced and and that uh, th- that there should be far less males in the society, and that that is the way. To change the ratio of the functions being expressed. What we need is more nurturing. We need more maternalism. And the way to do that is to get more maternal people. And since most maternal people seem to be female, this kind of social engineering could be done. This is like a fantasy in answer to your question because, of course, none of this will be done because it will be leaped on by hysterical fundamentalists and denounced as Satan's work and so forth. But I think the dynamic of three to one is an interesting one. Uh, in a sense, following Camille Paglia and that kind of rhetoric, what we're saying here is that, that if, if guys really got... As much sex as they think they want, they would probably hand over the machinery of civilization without a fight.
3: <laughs>
2: and uh, so it's like the it's like you know you want it here it is and. Uh,
3: is why prostitution is illegal. I
2: mean, why make it make sense for?
3: Because males would spend all of their energy, would spend all of their resources buying sex.
2: Well, but the fact that it's illegal doesn't make it non-existent. Um, I, I, I don't know. But
3: it's very tightly controlled mm-hmm.
2: by males. Yeah, well, we have to have strategies for reducing male dominance, and, uh, and we have to have strategies for advancing females, but we can't tromp on anybody living... So obviously then what we have to do are twiddle the demographic dials. We have to control birth rates overall. Then we have to control the sexual ratio of birth rates. And then I just don't think the monogamous marriage and the family unit, it's really dysfunctional. And I came up with this 3-1 thing because I also don't see us returning to the traditional extended family of many relatives and generations of people, because modern transportation makes that impossible. So a family based on genetic relationships doesn't seem to me possible. But what does seem possible is uh, social cohesion based on erotic attachment. and 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 that's what this three-one thing, and then the constellation of people around it would be, yeah.
1: What, what's your uh, what kind of feedback are you getting from females to, uh, about that
2: kind of? It sounds more like a male fantasy uh, than the, the two-one fantasy, perhaps,
1: but a uh, three-to-one.
2: Well, I suppose to be absolutely fair or you know, female fantasies might involve more males, but that's not allowed. We have enough So we're, because the overexpression of this dominator tendency is what's running us to rack and ruin. We're not trying to create these social arrangements for the titillation of one sex or the other. We're in a sinking submarine, for Christ's sake. We're trying to sort this out so we live, you know, and then hanky-panky later, you know. Do you need to
1: mention love, or is that outside of the whole thing? I mean, does that clouding the
2: issue? No, I don't think that clouds the... You mean, well, you mean that you imagine that love can only go on in this, in this dyadic situation? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that love... Uh, the, the thing I like about this 3-1 thing... Is that it's inherently kind of unstable you can tell that the energy will never settle that it what happens with a lot of marriages and even extended relationships is people come together there's all kinds of excitement they negotiate the arrangement they get the negotiation taken care of and then everything goes stale as the negotiate as the contract is acted out (laughs) if there were never any stability. If it kept changing all the time, then keeping track of this complex quadripartite relationship would be a full-time task. It would almost replace your job as, uh, as what? <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey, we'll no this happens. isn't going to work. <laughs>
3: the man out in no Because they get much better with each other. Than, uh, yeah. man. Well, that's why
2: the man has to be inspired to uh, achieve indispensability. <laughs> <laughs> but, Karen, what's the about well, between
1: that getting the men to fork over the goods for sex? I mean, it seems like it's as bold as Cleopatra. Not no, wait, so I don't that. understand. Yeah. Well, How did
2: like goods old... enter into it?
1: Yeah, I thought, I'm sorry, I thought you said that this was a way the women could get men to hand over the by offering them sex, but it seems to me that's been tried. In fact, that we see, you know, tycoons with beautiful women on their uh, on their
2: side, you know, uh, uh, at their side. Well, and isn't isn't this the way? The only way women were allowed to compete to get the men to do what they wanted through sex. I
1: mean, that doesn't seem very new to me.
2: Well, I think we're talking though about a new kind of woman. We're not talking about uh, submissive slave-like property. We're talking about independent, educated, financially uh, independent professionals. It would be, I'm sure, a phenomenon of the high-tech industrial democracies. Uh, I mean, it's weird to talk about this, but on the other hand, you have two choices. You can either propose something which sounds outlandish, or you can stick with what we've got, because what we've got we've had so long that anything else would sound outlandish and you know in the messy business of life what really happens is that it just is sort of all kinds of things come and go gel and dissolve and work themselves out under the aegis of all kinds of pressures economic epidemiological psychological driven by images of media and you know self worth fads and so forth
1: yeah
2: well I was thinking of this earlier today for some reason I was thinking that uh, I don't know why I was thinking this but I was thinking that sex is so intrinsically a mental activity that the amazing thing is that it's kept in the body at all and and that normally this equation is turned upside down and people say you know well it's so intrinsically of the body but Uh, You know, the fact that phone sex can be a $9 billion a year industry is telling us something about how erotic sensitivity is distributed through the network of the the civilization. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's a pity that it is linked so closely to biology. I mean, this is why the cult of sexiness is something very different and very modern than the cult of of procreation obsession. Uh, I mean, sexiness is something probably invented post eighteen fifty, and and its flash is all it is. And you know, it's the permeating erotic sensitivity that characterizes modern civilization in billboards, in advertising, in the constant assault of visual images. I mean, I really notice this when I go up the Amazon because there's no calendars, there's no girly pictures, Mm -hmm. there's no nothing. And then when you get back to Iquitos, you just realize, you know, that what civilization is is a notion of explicit erotic imagery that keeps us all in a state of probably willingness to consume stuff you know it's a stimulant it's a stimulant yes like caffeine but it's a it's a sexual it's stimulant so that's right i mean like the bi, the bisexuality which is a characteristic of feminine psychology in this society is i think directly related to the rise of modern advertising uh, there was no reason to reinforce that before 1850 or so. And then you you see this emerging. Do you think that virtual Well, I don't know. Is there a rage... I mean, I suppose there is a raging debate about pornography. There's a raging debate about everything. Ah, oh, pornography toward women and children. Well, I'd make a distinction between... Uh, Oh, God, now do we want to go off into this? <laughs> uh, uh, um, Camille Paglia asked, asked a very interesting question, to which I don't have the answer, but, and I don't even think we need to discuss it, but I think everybody should think about it. And the question was, uh, you know, can sexual liberation end anywhere but in sadomasochism? And that's a very interesting question. And sure it can. Well, she said maybe not. I don't know. I don't want to mud wrestle over it. Uh, but, uh, uh, and, then, and then, you know, what, what do we think about this? For instance, uh, aggression toward women. Um, it, what do we think of aggression toward women that is acted out and no women are actually abused? Is por- and this is where the pornography thing comes in. You know, Is it subliminal? Is it a cause or a substitute? If it's a substitute, we must surely agree it's a good thing. If it's a cause, we must surely agree it's a bad thing. Or is it both? Um, I, I don't have burning opinions about all this. I'm a, I'm a First Amendment guy right down the line and, and just take a position that nothing should be restricted by government, that there, whatever the means by which the memes are sorted out, it should not be the wisdom of a benevolent government telling us what kind of images uh, we should have. The the tough one in, is, uh, you know, images of pain and abuse, images of psychological degradation. I don't know exactly what to do about that. You know, if you go back to the roots of Western civilization and read Plato's Republic, Plato was very suspicious of the poets and did not think those people should be just allowed to run untrammeled over the landscape. Uh, And, you know, here at Esalen, um, a great deal of time and effort has been expended to establish the medical concept that there are healing images. You know, Stan's work, uh, some of Michael Murphy's work, some of the continuum work, healing images are an article of faith around here. I believe it. But has anybody stopped to notice that if there are healing images... There are sickening images. Well, then, so, uh, if you have tuberculosis, we don't say you have a right to mingle with the rest of us, or if you have some other contagious, rampantly contagious disease. Well, so then, if you're carrying a meme, which is toxic, then, you know, do your First Amendment rights exceed the mental health rights of the majority. This is a nightmare issue to discuss because, you know, I heard... A discussion on talk radio, and somebody was inveighing against Silence of the Lambs and saying, you know, it caused psychotic behavior. And somebody else called in and said, well, if you want to ban books that cause psychotic behavior, I think you better start with the Bible. It's caused more psychotic behavior among more people than any other book in history. It's Certainly book. true, but are we not obviously going to do that? But what is the relationship? To to toxic information. And psychedelic people, I think, can take a more cutting-edge role on this because we know the danger of toxic information because if you encounter some in your trip, it can really throw you for a loop. Yeah. Well,
3: I think uh, it comes down to integrating the shadow. And if you don't integrate the shadow... uh, this, it, it becomes very toxic so we've got to deal with our
2: total humanity but so far uh, what I know, we haven't I mean, I grew up in the most neurotic country uh, in recent history of course the United
3: States is catching up fast You know, I was born in Germany in 75 and I had this feeling I grew up, I said, God what is that around me? I had no words for it
2: and you know, I was just horrified I never wanted to grow up like that then I, you know, I end up in America now
3: it's
2: going to be like being German twice. <laughs> <laughs> Bad luck for you. <laughs> yeah, <I> mean, <laughs> Terrible choice. <laughs> but it's more
1: comfortable than Germany. Say, yeah. Well, doesn't that lead you right back to psychedelics again? To you know, how you want to straighten all this stuff up? You, you, you know, you got to start with the brain, and you, and you got to start with. Uh,
2: yeah. Although a, a question that interests me, since you know I've been roughly doing workshops like this since 1983 and you know I've gotten to know everybody in the psychedelic movement and all the personalities and shakers and so forth and so on and many of you in this room I've known for years and years and a question that's interesting to me is you know uh, like everybody else on some ideological bender eventually we're going to have to answer to uh, the bar of public opinion you know what is so great about our thing or are we just like mormons or jehovah's witnesses or Rajnishis or something and we have this wonderful thing which we're just convinced is the holy grail and yet if you're not part of our little clique then it just looks like a bunch of deluded, lost souls reinforcing each other's belief in some alchemical nostrum that, uh, you know. So I'm interested in the moral consequences of taking psychedelics. Uh, Time is passing. Is the meme breaking loose? Is it a positive meme? do people behave better to each other? Do they perform acts of charity or whatever, acts of creativity? Uh, Or is it... um good for the individual but inconsequential in its effects on society in other words that you know when the final catastrophe comes you will meet it with great humor equanimity uh, understanding because your psychedelic training has taught you to take it all with a grain of salt but nevertheless you know the sludge will sweep over and all will be lost and you just went down without whining or complaining. Uh, I, I don't know. It, the thing that is so surprising about the psychedelics is how close to the surface the, um, the state lies, and yet how dramatically different from ordinary consciousness it is. I mean, it is dramatically different, and it lies very, very close to the surface. This is why it's you know, possible to suggest that it's just a one or two gene mutation away in the neurochemistry and then you would be able to slip into these places i mean thinking what is thinking reverie you know and where in the animal phylogeny does it begin and how intense is it uh mental behaviors with the internal contemplation of language how how broadly based are these behaviors how many different kinds of them are there Uh, we don't know, we don't even have a vocabulary for this kind of thing. Yes, you wanted to say something. Um,
3: just an observation after 30 years of studying and experimenting with psychedelics is that uh, one of the things that they do is that they allow a person, this is assuming that we are not thinking the thoughts that we are identifying with. And if you do psychedelics, you get to a state where you're beyond thinking you can step aside and it's, there's a common denominator that a lot of people, yogis and people who say for 20 30 or 40 years, that we can assimilate that same state in a relatively short period of time. And that in history, we can't really change anybody but like ourselves. And by changing ourselves, we can change everything. Okay. And that um, what's going to happen and what's not going to happen in the future if every person can work on being 100% conscious in the moment that's where all the magic happens that's where all the miracles happen it's being 100% here, focused and by doing that, then whatever is happening, you're able to be part of a solution instead of part of an illusion and so, word really bless, I feel to have good psychedelics and to be able to spend many years of have experimenting with them, and that the gift is to be an example of what having and that we be able to share that with our children, how uh, they can grow up to become conscious.
2: Yeah, one way to think of it is uh, what you call a hundred percent aware is to just strive for appropriate activity that if everyone in this room were to suddenly begin behaving completely appropriately, it would immediately change the context of things and set the stage for further appropriate behavior. And this would be like a cascade of appropriateness. I mean, enlightenment need be nothing more than that, I think. Yeah? Now
1: now we're just getting into that area of almost like religion now. You know, it's like just what you just said you know that's that's it sounds like somebody you know is like S or somebody behind a pulpit you know it's, it's really close to that but it's good <laughs>
2: well let's hope it's not too close to that <laughs> it's contagious coherence well, appropriate activity. I mean, is somebody going to speak up for inappropriate activity? I mean, it, it's a it's a it's a winning it's a winning concept. <laughs> but
1: the inappropriate activities rampant already as it is. I mean, that's that's pretty
2: obvious. And yeah. Well, inappropriate activity stems from bad communication. Uh, you know, bad message transfer and. No, there should be some kind of maximum energy solution in any given situation that everybody can relate to. I mean, once when I was in the Amazon, I uh, discovered a sense that I didn't know people had. On psychedelics, I discovered this sense. And it's an it's a internal desk accessory which allows you to calculate the least energetic path between two points, not the shortest distance, but the least, the path of least effort between any two points. And it has to do with following ridge edges. And I just discovered this, this ability in myself, and it's real, and I'm sure it was very important for primitive... Uh, you know for people before history and who knows how many of these kinds of talents and abilities and behaviors because they're software programs which when it, they become inappropriate they just fade away and yet you know the hardware is perfectly capable of of running these programs yeah
1: i wanted to just harken back to this thing that we started out with I'm gonna ask you, in this in the dichotomy between the, between history and Eros, you say that, that within history is a kind of built-in endpoint that you can sense. Right. So does that mean that at, that at, that is the life end of history a uh, dissolution into Eros? Is that the conclusion that you draw from that?
2: I guess it is the conclusion that I draw from it. I mean, that finally, when language fails, as it surely must, then there will be love. L- love is, uh, you know, lies beyond all that. So, so, so you can only take ratiocination so far, you can only model the thing so much. That's why, always in these Wild, far-flung schemes of modeling the end of history and the end of time and everything, the, the fractal key is one's own experience. The feeling of being of death, the feeling of love, these things can be extrapolated to universal proportions. Everybody gives um, currency to the idea that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, right? Everybody knows what this means, correct? Ah, it's simple. It means that the fetus in the womb, the ontology, recapitulates the phylogeny. It means that the fetus in the womb goes through all the stages of evolution. It begins as a single-celled creature. It becomes like a fish. It becomes an amphibian. It changes into a mammal. It changes into a primate. It changes into a human being. But nobody ever then takes the process further and says, well, what we've learned by observing this, we can learn more by further extending the process. The person in the womb, now a complete person, is born and then they have a life and then they die so if ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny then what then the entire answer to how does the world work and what is it is contained in looking at the fractal substructure of an individual history from conception to death and uh,
3: consciousness dies or not, or whether some physical transmutation takes place that's beyond living on um, this plane that we can perceive.
2: Sure, no, right. There's no certitude about that question by looking at that process. But everybody can, you, you can see that for each of us as individuals, the thing ends in death, which is a big question mark. So then, as a society, we should not be surprised that there is built in to the superstructure of the society, the same kind of dissolving, uh, it appears to happen even when there is no real good reason for it. Like, for instance, with the Maya. I mean, they, their civilization collapsed basically just because uh, they were stupid. In other words, they got bad habits. There was no external pressure on them, they just made stupid mistakes and then the whole thing came apart Uh, we could be in a similar in a similar situation but to your question about how nobody knows what lies beyond death, nobody knows who is using the sanctioned tools of scientific investigation but if you go next door to the shamans They claim all kinds of information on this question. They claim, essentially, a technology for accessing an ecology of souls where a great deal of power uh, for potentially good or evil lies as a reservoir that can be brought across by certain kinds of practices and activities. Now, science says that that's malarkey. But science says that the primary datum in support of that contention, which is the psychedelic experience, is also malarkey. And you can satisfy yourself that the psychedelic experience is in fact an ordered uh, perspective on something coherent simply by having that experience. So you, little old you can satisfy yourself that science is not dealing from the top of the deck on this question of The content and meaning of the psychedelic experience and I feel like maybe the big news the truly jaw-dropping news that will come out of all this re-exploration of the archaic and shamanism and hallucinogenic plants and so forth and so on is a mapping of this realm of souls uh, that what we are actually on the verge of securing is that there is something which survives the physical organism. And it's hard to tell what it is because, you know, essentially we're at the stage with this where people were with electricity in 1700. Uh, We have yet to build the technologies, establish the standards, and create the vocabulary for talking about this. But if the task of Western epistemology is to integrate all knowledge into its sway then shamanism and the experiences of shamanism have to be brought into the metaphor and I think what this may in fact secure is that biology is the platform for establishing some more um, hyperdimensional structure that survives yeah, no Yes, stretching. And with the <laughs> death of the culture... Pardon me? And, and,
1: and therefore the cultural death or whatever this that, that, that would follow... Then it's well, not kind it, of it may
2: be you see that what we're... that in fact what the most pessimistic among us believe is happening is happening. That in fact there's no way out. That in fact we're all going to die. The question... Then the question becomes what is that? What does it mean? You know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, Borges had a story where uh, the intellect the of the species could not move on until the last member of the species became extinct. Uh, there is some kind of relationship to mind across this barrier. Or shamans have chosen to interpret a nearby non-physical species of life as somehow related to the human after death, and why that should be and why that error should persist over 50 or 100,000 years is not clear either. I said earlier today, science proceeds with the simple cases first. You know, what is a marble rolling down a slope, so forth and so on. But the complex question, you know, what is my perception of my being what is the nature of the inner dialogue that describes the ontos of being this is a very very complicated question it takes 2000 years of preparing the epistemic ground before you can even reasonably ask uh, uh, the question yeah why are you supposed to, uh, you're talking about We're all
3: dying as as all dying as a species. They're all dying as civilization. We don't like the fact that we're going to die as individuals, but somehow we grudgingly accept that and we create a lot of literature and commerce around it. Why is the idea that we're all going to die as a species so much worse? Um, and, and,
2: and well, because I think probably as a species we're more neurotic than our individual members. We're pretty hysterical about this. We're not taking the news well that the doctor <laughs> is handing out. You know that ch- you know, like
1: maybe some, maybe something
2: lives on.
1: Right. Yes,
2: well, we've talked about this in the past in terms simply of technological innovation, that, for instance, if a technology of time travel were to be created, historicity would end. Uh, the the s- linear serial unfolding of events would become an epoch that lasted from 10,000 B.C. to 1998 or something, and then following the epoch of serial moments came the epoch of non-serial moments, the epoch of simultaneity, in which people choose where to live in time the way they choose where to live in space now. yeah.
1: Well, um, heros, now I he know it's heros.
3: Well, that
2: achieved through a knitting together. Everything that is is an anticipation of what will be. Uh, being is growing more uh, nascent, or something. Uh, There is this appetite for becoming, that everything is striving for manifestation. And somehow what this boils down to mathematically is that all points seek cotangency, which means that in terms of dimensionality, The phase space of description is collapsing, and all the points within it are becoming cotangent. The 16th century anticipated this in the form of the philosopher's stone, you know, the alchemical quintessence, the lapis. Uh, It's a zone of space-time that is a singularity. It's where matter and imagination exchange clothing, and matter behaves as though it is imagination, and imagination behaves as though it is a material physics.
1: Yeah. Okay, I mean, you, I, that's really, I, I, I really described it also, like, we're going to, it's like breaking the sound barrier for the first time, we, we you know, we, before we broke the sound barrier, we didn't know what that was going to be like, so when we did it the first time, it was smooth as glass afterwards, you know, you break through it it shakes, and then afterwards...
2: Mind, well, yeah, well, his, you know—one of these, uh, one of these little aphorisms that the mushroom handed out was, "History is the shock wave of eschatology." What that means is that as the species mind approaches the eschaton what is called Q in engineering circles, uh, vibration, begins to build up along the leading edges of the social vehicle. And uh, as, it appro- as it approaches the eschaton, this Q force builds, and this is where we are. We are literally having our teeth shaken out as, as the historical bow shock of encountering the eschaton builds. If we can redesign the culture fast enough, the airframe of culture, then we can create an airfoil that will distribute the queue, and we will just slide through. If we can't do that, then our airfoil will be ripped to pieces, and we will, you know, back to the drawing board. Or some will go through, that, and some won't. You know, that abyss we're talking about, that 2012. You know, like, first of all, how we go through that together? Or, you know, mm-hmm. some people be on this side? You know? No, I think it's a temporal moment of embedded novelty. Um, they've come and they've gone, but this is a critical one because it sets the stage for, you know, it's a summation of everything that has happened, and it's an anticipation of everything that. Uh, that will follow it it is that history is a kind of psychedelic trip it's a kind of alchemical um, distillation of the quintessence and that the stuff generated out of the alembic of history is this transdimensional cyber electric um, literalization of the imagination you know, James Joyce said, man will be dirgible. What he meant was that the raw stuff of the unconscious will be downloaded into shimmering silicon, and, uh, and the protean child will be, uh, will be born out of uh, the chaos of history. Something like that.
3: You know,
2: well, and the other thing is, a lot of what is called neurosis... Or what is called, less technically, unhappiness, is actually, I think, uh, 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 caused by uh, performance failure that is ultimately sort of physical. In other words, a person who is not operating at their physical optimum will be mentally depressed. But it's crazy to look for childhood trauma or something that lies behind that because the cause of the depression is physiological, not psychological. So, um, well, if you can take a pill and your depression goes away and your performance improves, psychotherapy is not indicated in that case, I would think. It doesn't- well, if you delay it long enough, it's solved. <laughs> I've always felt that tabling is a great solution for all kinds of problems. How does the time wave apply to the individual life? Do we speed up when we get older? Well, people, you know, it's a truism to say that the older you are, the faster time moves, that when you're seven, a year takes forever. When you're 77, they just rush past like pages falling from the calendar. Uh, I, you know, astrology went through a crisis several hundred years ago where under the emergence of a new class of wealthy people, there became a demand for personal horoscopes, And so astrology reconfigured its toolkit to be able to provide that. Um, I'm not very interested in individual time waves. I don't even have my own readily accessible. But what you can do is you can take your birth date and and add to it one full cycle, which is 67 years, 104.25 days, And set that as an end date and then you do get good correlation between your life and the wave a way to think about how this relates to the general time wave is that the general time wave is simply the average of all the little time waves in other words it's additive so obviously we all are at different places in our time wave otherwise when I'm happy you'd be happy and when I lose money, you'd lose money, and it doesn't work that way. I mean, some people are miserable in the presence of other people's joy, uh, often causally related. <laughs> so obviously, these people are at different places uh, in in the cycle. Yeah. Would you
0: like to say anything about TCB, since we were talking about drugs and a more a more general sort of political question? Uh, you I think obviously act as a very strong advocate for psychedelic drugs Has this attracted to you any
3: official attention uh, oh. are you getting audited every year uh, uh, well, <laughs> <what's>
2: um, <about? laughs> well actually i 've never been audited i don 't it doesn 't attract any attention. This is a great disappointment to the more. Uh, delicately poised of my fans who would like to assume, you know, that we're at the barricades, uh, barely able to evade the long arm of the law. Uh, I I don't know. Their strategy, in my case, seems to be incredibly intelligent. They just completely ignore me. (laughs) And uh, why that is, is maybe because it just doesn't matter, or Because I use big words, I'm dismissed as an intellectual, and we all know how powerful they are in America. So that's that.
3: It's because there's obviously no money involved. Well,
2: that's the other thing. I mean, my theory on drugs is if you're not making money from it, you're of utterly no interest to anybody. Opinions are free. Except
1: for Uh, a couple in... uh where is it in they got arrested for having the, uh, frogs well
2: then there are the occasional uh, examples they got arrested for what? Uh-huh. toad ranching <laughs> <laughs> uh, a heinous and nightmarish crime uh, they were they were extracting 5-methoxy DMT from Bufo Alvarius that they were had in a domesticated situation in their home and uh, I suppose they were beaten with rubber truncheons and taken away their house seized, their children taken from them, their animals murdered, and so forth. teacher
1: a. Really? Well, it just shows how deep into
2: the middle class these nightmarish practices have reached. Uh, I mean, the abuse of amphibians is something our grandparents never contemplated, and, and yet here we are. You see, it's, it's an ugly, ugly business.
1: Under the press to say that you they put a lay to the rumor that you don't just lick it. They describe the whole thing in the article, which was the big thing.
2: Yeah. yeah, I think it was the Australian press which popularized the image of of uh, people nuzzling the under tummies of toads in order to uh, attain <laughs> yeah I know I haven't forgotten you uh, 2CB uh, you know I have no opinion about that no experience with that I mean I did take 2CB once but it didn't emerge prominently enough me to form a bunch of opinions. Just as a general rule, but it's, you know, rules are made to be broken, I'm not part of uh, the faction that thinks we need ever more exotic drugs. I think we have a full toolbox if we just would use it. Um, and uh, you know, if you have ayahuasca, psilocybin, DMT, toss in mescaline, ibogaine, and cannabis. Uh huh. Well, capitalism is searching for you, I'm sure, <laughs> in its usual thorough fashion. Uh, but you know, it's a very individual thing. I mean, whatever works, use it. Uh, People have to come to terms with this. We are very much the product of our genetic and biochemical differences. And uh, some people uh, like things that other people can't handle at all. And you have to... Part of your self-education in pharmacology is learning what you uh, what works for you. Yeah? Um, how does it calculate? To to do yeah, well outside of the intellectual concerns of science this has been a generally persistent attitude that time is as important as geography Uh, uh, not only astrology but uh, Mayan divinatory methods African divinatory methods I think that you know science uh... Is running against the flow here with its attitude that time is not uh, to be differentiated the reason for that if you analyze it is not far to seek science depends on the concept of experiment and an experiment to mean anything must be time independent and so In a sense, you could almost say that what science is is the study of those phenomena so coarse-grained that when they occur, doesn't affect them. And so that leaves out most interesting things. You know, all the subtler processes of biology, psychology, sociology are left out of that. Uh, by an, and and yet that's why this idea I showed you last night it may appear revolutionary but it's really revolutionary because science could not operate it would be the end of science if this idea were accepted because it says that experiments are time dependent therefore it is not ever possible to perform the same experiment twice therefore the idea of building up a a serial set of observations of many examples of the same experiment is bogus and uh, so you know this idea aligns itself with astrology and with all these other pre-scientific theories of, of uh, change that is modulated by both space and time yes question yes
3: uh, in growing such items like uh, ayahuasca vine and scotter uh, veritas and so on, how does one, I mean, like someone like you in Occidental or in Hawaii can grow it, put it freely apparently, does uh, it means it's okay or it's kosher for someone like us to also grow it and not be able to be harassed by some DEA or somebody that uh, might know what it is or what have you?
2: Well, you have to be an excellent Amazonian field botanist to recognize these things. It's a pretty moot point. I mean, you do have DMT in your brain, so you're potentially bustable at all times. Um, uh, Socotria viridis, it's not easily recognized. Uh, Ayahuasca and Socotria viridis can't be grown in Occidental, for example, because it's too cold. They can be grown in Hawaii this conference that I was at in Mexico, the great, you know, alternative technology that those people are excited about is what are called ayahuasca analogs, meaning that a closer scrutiny to the flora of the earth shows that in most environments there are plants which produce DMT and there are plants which contain... Uh, MAO inhibitors in them in most ecosystems of the world there are plants which if properly prepared create a kind of ayahuasca and so people are retiring to their kitchens and laboratories to cook furiously all of these things if you're interested in doing this uh, the way to proceed is uh, as an MAO inhibitor you need seeds of Pagamon harmala no more than two grams. Pagamen harmala seeds are available from seed suppliers. They're also available in Iranian markets as a product called Hermal, little hard black seeds. A gram of them, I'm sorry, two grams of them pulverized in a shot of water or alcohol will uh, inhibit your MAO quite thoroughly. If you then take a DMT source orally uh, you will have a a, a response to it and people are using um, Desmanthus illinoiensis, the Illinois bundle weed Uh, at this conference letters were read from people in Australia who were using Australian acacias Um, Phalaris grasses can be grown and in the, in using a sprouting device, mm. you can grow phalaris sprouts and then dry them, and they have, are intense in the sprouting stage with DMT. So this group of people I was with in Mexico, their great enthusiasm is to provide so many different psychedelic, so many different paths to the psychedelic experience that there's no way they can all be made illegal. Uh, DMT, I mean, we have not yet hit the crush in terms of the social debate about all this. DMT was made illegal when um, LSD was made illegal at the height of a media-fanned hysteria in an atmosphere of intense know-nothingism. It was not known at the time that DMT occurs in human metabolism, nor was the physiological profile of dmt known what rationale for keeping a drug illegal is there if it's not a social problem it begins to look just like sheer for your own goodism of some sort uh one way of measuring an index of of uh, the danger posed by a drug is to look at how many emergency room admissions there have been for that drug. Well, I dare say in the last five years for DMT intoxication, there've probably been zero emergency room admissions. By the time anybody could get you to the emergency room, your main anxiety is that nobody find out that you uh, lost it. Uh, So, uh, And the fact that it's a human metabolite, We have to... I don't know what's going to happen. It's a very interesting situation because the arguments for keeping the psychedelics illegal are becoming weaker and weaker and weaker and more and more flimsy and more and more people are awakening to what a racket this is and uh, weird forms of co-option are taking place. I mean, you know, it, it's not easy in Garberville to advocate the legalization of cannabis because people all around you are getting $400 an ounce for it. The thought of legalization strikes terror in their hearts. They have a kid at Stanford. They have a house in Saint-Tropez. They have a sailboat. Why in God's name would you want to legalize cannabis? So uh, this is a factor, you know. Um, and there, you know, in the past several years, three years or so, there's been an enormous surge in psychedelic publishing. Uh, I don't know if you're all aware of it. You certainly should be. I mean, uh, obviously, you should buy and read every word I've ever written. Uh, <laughs> uh, in addition to that, uh, Sasha Shulgin and Ann Shulgin's book, Pical has come out. Uh, you should be aware of Jonathan Ott's book Pharmacotheon, which, in between the covers of one book, if you just want, you know, excellent scholarship and the longest bibliography ever to attend a drug book, that <laughs> this is for you. Uh, Eduardo Luna's book on ayahuasca has come out. Um, well, it seems that well, Schulte's book, the healing plants of the Northwest Amazon has come out. Um, there's a resurgence of interest in this field and uh, I think it's a, it's a very hopeful sign that people are, are, you know, have enough sense to realize that it has something to do with shamanism, it has something to do with plants, it has something to do with taking charge of your own experience and spiritual growth and, you know, ditching Ideologies and you know some of these BD-eyed gurus are being sent back to wherever they came from to find honest work among their own kind. <laughs> this, is, this is a fine thing, I think. Uh, let's
1: imagine that we're post legalization. How would you see it with the uh, money that the government would want it to go toward uh, education? and would it be like the way it is in Amsterdam? they would sell so it mm-hmm. in cafes? And-
2: I don't know I haven't see I guess I'm a cynic about this I I believe that the reason drugs are kept illegal have nothing to do with the reasons given for why they're kept illegal they're kept illegal because if they were legal it would be hard to make a lot of money off of them and you know an enormous part of the world economy runs on drugs Mm. so and always has I mean sugar coffee tea uh, spices. Yeah. Drugs, Good drugs, thing. drugs. Uh, so uh, it would be a much saner and safer world if drugs were legalized because intelligence agencies would not have these vast sources of money which they then use to finance private armies, murder liberal uh, magazine editors, uh, set up phony political parties, indoctrinate people, so forth and so on. So it's really an issue of covert control. Drugs are the last bastion of uh, hidden slush funds at the billion dollar and up level. Uh, If this were not a factor, the psychedelics never would have been illegal. I mean, the the whole drug scheduling thing is completely cockamamie. You have Schedule 1, which is the severest category, and what do we have in this most severe of all categories? We have heroin, we have cannabis, and we have the psychedelics. Schedule 2 is cocaine. Cocaine has legitimate medical applications. It's used in certain kind of throat and eye operations. Uh, So uh, so it's the psychedelics, strangely enough, which are the most stigmatized of all the uh, non-addictive drugs. This is just pure fear, and it relates to what I talked to last night about the issue of surrender and how anxious the dominator types become when the issue is loss of control. You know, they are absolute control freaks. And, uh, you know, until people demand that this be changed, it won't be changed. And people are not very demanding. I mean, you know you give people the four-term governor of Arkansas and they think that, you know, Christ is healing in the marketplace or something. <laughs> I mean, that that's how pathetic the liberal <coughs> position in America has become, that it can, can embrace someone like Bill Clinton as its standard bearer, um, not to launch into a knock on that. I mean, I certainly prefer it over George Bush, but it's, it's very minimally important. It doesn't impinge on our lives. All these people are jackasses and should be hung in a civilized society. They would be hung before a howling mob. <laughs> but... Um, would a civilized society hang anybody? Huh? Would a civilized society hang anybody? Certainly it would. Voltaire said the common people will know no peace until the last politician is strangled publicly in the entrails of the last priest. (laughs) But that's just an opinion of mine, you don't have to follow me into that, (laughs) and probably shouldn't.
3: You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: Well, maybe we shouldn't follow Terence in the direction of Voltaire, as he asked, but at times, don't you think that uh, perhaps old Voltaire got it right after all? Of course, uh, Voltaire died over 200 years ago, and uh, now the politicians even outnumber the priests. So uh, about the only solution I can come up with is to uh, simply ignore all politicians and priests as best you can. If you can't beat them, ignore 'em. ignore That's my motto. By the way, uh, during the talk we just heard, I think you remember hearing Terrence when he was asked a question about 2CB. He said he really had no opinion and little information about it. However, uh, if you are interested in that compound, you may want to take a look at the reports on arrowid.org, E-R-O-W-I-D.org, and or uh, listen to the interview that I gave uh, that's titled Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate, where I pass along a few things that I've learned about that substance myself. Now, uh, I need to tell you a little bit about what I've decided to do from a financial standpoint to keep the salon cranking along indefinitely. If you go to our program notes blog, which you can uh, get to via psychedelicsalon.us, you'll find the following notice. Uh, Here's part of it at least. In order to ensure that the salon's podcasts continue uninterrupted for the next 12 months, every March we will conduct a fundraising campaign. This will be the only time during the year that donations will be accepted. Now, uh, as you can probably tell, this isn't going to be a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo or other crowdfunding campaign. And the main reason that I'm keeping it here among us friends is that it's doubtful that there would be more than a handful of people who would contribute that uh, aren't already fellow Saloners. So I decided to uh, just keep this little campaign here in the family and uh, not pay the uh, 9% or so in fees to the crowdsourcing company. Of course, uh, one of the things that uh, people like about the public crowdsourcing platforms is that premium gifts are offered to the donors. Well, not to be completely outdone, I'm also going to give our donors a little something. Uh, It isn't much, but the point is to raise money to keep the salon online and not to sell a bunch of premiums. So the two things that I'm going to offer are these. First of all, the names of everybody who donates one dollar or more will be displayed on our new sponsors honor roll page and uh... that's if they want to be so listed and all previous donors by the way from the january first of this year through the end of february are also going to be automatically included in that uh... honor roll uh, in, in the event that you don't want your uh, first name and initial or whatever other name you go by to be posted, uh, please let me know via email and uh, send this one to this new email address that so far isn't getting any junk. It's uh, donations at matrixcast.com. That's M A T R I X c-a-s-t com donations at matrixcast.com uh, those messages will get to me and if you want your name uh, shown some different way or something than it appeared uh, when I read it previously or uh, the ones that just recently came in uh, usually give your full name so I'll just put your first name and initial or other name if that's what you want also uh, Anybody who donates $45 or more, I'm going to send them a USB thumb drive that has MP3s of the first 400 podcasts from the salon. And uh, these are going to be shipped in June of this year, or hopefully before them. And I've also collected about 100 of my favorite Terrence McKenna sound bites that uh, range from 10 seconds to 2 minutes long. And uh, I'll also put those on your thumb drive. Uh, those would be kind of handy for those of you who are doing uh, sampling and things like that. Now, one of my friends is uh, developing a logo for the salon, and if all goes well, we're going to imprint that on the drive as well. The thumb drive, that is. Now, if any of our fellow salons owns or works for a company that uh, custom prints logos and uploads uh, software to thumb drives, uh, the ones that are purchased in bulk, well, uh, please let me know via that email address that I just gave you, and uh, hopefully we can keep this business in the family as well. So, uh, for people like me who were raised on Catholic guilt, the good news is that after the end of this month, there won't be a donate button staring you in the face each time you go to our program notes. And if you're like me, uh, that might even have caused you to stay away from our uh, blog, and in so doing, you're missing some interesting comments that our fellow slaughters are posting. And by the way, uh, the comments aren't automatically approved. I have to read and approve each one, uh, including the grumpy ones that I don't like or agree with. Uh, I usually approve all of them, too. I guess the only time I don't approve a non-spam comment is uh, when personal attacks and name-calling seeps in, but that only rarely happens. So uh, that's about it for now. During this month, I'm going to try and get a few more podcasts out than I usually do so that I can keep you updated with our progress. Uh, I'll first finish this uh, current McKenna workshop in my next podcast, and after that I plan on podcasting some more of the Planque Norte talks as well as uh, an interview I plan to do with Dr. Charlie Grobe and Alicia Danforth, who have now begun a new research study that I, I think you're going to be interested in learning more about. And so for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.